I want to start this morning the way I promised you I would start last week, uh, which is taking you to 1 John chapter 5. And let me just very briefly touch on uh, our scripture reading from last week, which several of you mentioned uh, piqued your interest. And uh, I hope it drove you to some study and examination on your own. And I, I want to encourage you that way every time I get the opportunity, but I also wanted to provide some commentary here on uh, what John is talking about. In verse number uh, 16 of First John chapter 5, we find the proof text for what is known in the Roman Catholic Church as mortal sin, um, which they use to do a varying degree of sin. So certain sins are mortal sins, certain sins are non-mortal sins, and uh, there's two classes of sin. Um, it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, um, to those who, who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that that, that that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And um, that can be a confusing section. We talked about the reality that uh, John is not confused about uh, what the Apostle Paul says to us in Romans about the wage of every sin being death. And uh, nor is Paul ignorant of uh, Elder John, who is um, one of the original 12 and his perspective here in this letter uh, of First John. There are multiple perspectives, maybe two that are most common amongst evangelicals, amongst those who would reject the varying degrees of sin as as some leading to death and some not leading to death. And that would really depend on what death we're talking about. So either we're talking about spiritual death or we're talking about physical death here. So there's a couple keys that I think are important for you. And um, how many of you have a MacArthur Study Bible? Can I see? Raise the hands. Okay, great. So I'm going to read part of the note from that, uh, from this verse, which I think is helpful. And uh, you can give a little bit more careful attention. Um, I I certainly think that that note is clarifying when it comes to this issue, even though there are two perspectives that prevail. One is that there is um, there is dealing with what John is dealing with here is spiritual death. And that this brother that is addressed in verse number 16 is only a so-called brother. And so we are praying for repentance and for turning of a false brother who is committing sin. And that some sin will lead to an immediate um, spiritual death, but there is sin that can be rescued from. So the idea here would be not any one particular sin, but a spiritual death that would occur because of the sin of rejecting Christ. Um, as long as an unbeliever is involved in the sin of rejecting Christ, there is no forgiveness, right? There must be repentance from the sin of rejecting Christ to ever receive forgiveness through Christ. I think the more helpful perspective would be to see this as physical death and to see the brother as a genuine Christian. So a genuine brother is seen in sin. Uh, one of the ways that we should respond to sin in a brother's life is to confront that sin lovingly, graciously, point it out. That's Matthew chapter 18. Um, it's important for us to point out sin when we see it in each other's lives. But the second uh, way that we can be a part of another brother's Sin is praying for that brother. And that's exactly what John is talking about here. 
I think what John is saying is that there are certain sins that will lead to physical death for the believer. First Corinthians chapter 11 communicates that, that there are believers who are already dead because of their disregard uh, for the cross of Christ. In particular context, their communion and uh, the Lord's table, which we'll celebrate and remember together in just a few minutes. So I believe John's warning here is you can be confident as you pray for brothers and sisters who are in sin that there will be restoration if that sin is not leading to death. You see that? So if the sin is not such that God will discipline them, lovingly discipline them with physical death, you can be confident that the Spirit of God working in this brother will restore this brother, will, will bring this brother to repentance and to obedience like Andy was praying for all of us uh, just a few minutes ago. So the note from the MacArthur Study Bible says, such a sin could be any premeditated and unconfessed sin that causes the Lord to determine to end a believer's life. It's not one particular sin like homosexuality or lying, but whatever sin is the final one in the tolerance of God. Failure to repent and forsake sin may eventually lead to physical death as a judgment of God. No intercessory prayer will be effective for those who have committed such deliberate high-handed sin i.e. God's discipline with physical death, is inevitable in such cases as he seeks to preserve the purity of his church. Uh, Not unlike Ananias and Sapphira, who were struck immediately. The contrast to the phrase, there is sin leading to death, with there is a sin not leading to death, signifies that the writer distinguishes between sins that may lead to physical death and those that do not. So I believe that John is accurate in this. I think it's really helpful because all sin leads to spiritual death. So the only distinction between sins that lead to death and don't lead to death would be in the physical sense, and the physical death would only be correlated to those who are genuinely brothers. That's all I'm going to say because if I launch into the next explanation, uh, we'll be in here for half an hour. So if that only muddied the waters for you and that confuses you, I want to... I want to be a servant to you, so let me know, and we can talk through that a little bit more. I think the best understanding here is the brother is genuine, the sin is real, and unchecked by the atoning blood of Christ would lead to spiritual death. But in this case, because it's a brother, it could only lead to to physical death. And um, when praying for a sinning brother, understand that praying for their restoration may not happen if it's a sin that is going to be responded to with God's discipline of physical death. Does that make sense? Okay, I saw at least one person nod yes, so I'm taking it. I'm going to go with it, and (laughs) we're going to move forward. All right? All right, from there, go to Isaiah chapter 53. That's where we're going to start this morning when we read the Word, and then we'll move to Matthew from Isaiah chapter 53 and um, study together. I want to let you know that uh, God has opened up an opportunity for me to preach elsewhere this coming weekend. I'll spend... Friday to Monday, preaching at Heartland Christian Camp up in the mountains, and I'm um, excited to do that. It's a high school snow camp. I don't know that there's snow, but there's a high school winter camp happening, and uh, high schoolers from a myriad of churches and backgrounds will be there, and uh, I can't know them. I don't know their backgrounds. I have no idea what I'm facing, um, but I know that I have the Word of God with me and uh, the Spirit of God helping me. So please pray for that ministry to be effective Um, I think it's an important one in particular just because of our proximity to Heartland and the opportunity to be um, an encouragement there. And and many of you are. I think we have several executive board members from Heartland in our church. And uh, after I paid them, I got this invitation. I don't know how it all worked out, but it 
just really panned out. No, actually, uh, we do have board members and people. Many of you have loved Heartland and been influenced by Heartland for God's glory. So pray that that would only continue as our church develops and uh, grows. And uh, that this weekend, coming weekend, my influence there would be all for the glory of God. That's what I desire. Pray for the souls of high schoolers that need Christ uh, to be uh, redeemed. And um, I appreciate your partnership in that. I'm excited to, to see what God does through that opportunity. Okay, Isaiah chapter 53. Let's, let's read a few verses, verse number 2 down through verse number 7. Part of this is what Kristen was reading, Kristen Getty was reading at the beginning of our offertory. We'll reread that together, beginning in verse number 2. Talking about Christ, this is prophecy about Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now notice verse number three in particular. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we collectively as humanity esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse number seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. With that ringing in our ears, let's move to Matthew chapter 26 and conclude our study of this chapter, outlining, recounting for us the Passion Week of our Savior. Matthew chapter 26 beginning our reading in verse number 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. 
And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out. And wept bitterly. Father, thank you for this portion of your word that you have ordained for our study this morning. We recognize our need. I recognize my need in this moment for power from you. For your spirit's gifting and enablement to be evident. So I ask for help that there would be clarity. There would be conviction. That there would be a manner that is appropriate to the text in this proclamation of your word. And we all recognize our desperate need for your help in understanding and in receiving your word. I pray that those who are receiving this instruction would receive it with open arms, would welcome your word, would be discerning, would be students of your word, even as we study together. And that the effects of this time would be eternal in their consequence. That there would be fruit born through this study that would bring glory to your name for all eternity. That there would be praise and glory to your son. Who is the worthy lamb who went to the slaughter in our place. As we bear fruit from our time in your word this morning. Teach us. Reshape us. Renew us. Refocus us. Plant us. Water and grow us so that we might be effective for your kingdom. We pray these things knowing that our, our requests for grace are only heard through your son who's at your right hand. And so we come boldly into your throne room and we seek grace from you who gives it liberally. Help us now for these few moments we pray for the exaltation of your son in dependence upon your spirit for your glory, Father. Amen. Well, as we dive into the final section of Matthew chapter 26, I think it's important for us. I know it's been important for me this week in my preparation to be reminded of the timeline that existed here in these really in these hours of Thursday evening into Friday and the. The historic day of the death of Jesus. As we look at the whole of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, and Luke being known as the synoptic gospels, and John being a special gospel set aside from the other three, and we collect all of the record that is given to us of this time, I want to just remind you, just give you a couple of simple clarifying points. In fact, five distinctions of the timeline of what's taking place in these final moments of Jesus' life. Number one, Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane. So he's At the Mount of Olives, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's arrested there somewhere around midnight on Thursday night, which would have already been Friday, according to a Jewish understanding of the days 
A new day beginning at sundown of the previous day. It's midnight on Thursday night. Jesus is arrested. He stands before Annas, who was the high priest's father-in-law. And he stands before Annas first. And we believe that's at Caiaphas' house. So whether Annas lived at Caiaphas' house or he was just there that evening because he knew what was going to take place, we don't know. But we know that John 18 tells us that the first thing Jesus did was stand in the presence of this very old man, Annas, who was previous high priest. Number three, Jesus stands before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, or what's called in our text, the council. And he stands in this mock trial. This is all during the early morning hours of Friday. And so this is deep into the night on Thursday, early into the morning on Friday, midnight, perhaps to around 2 a.m. Fourthly, Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin again on Friday morning. Now, Friday morning, we believe this is at the temple, and there's some public showing of the Sanhedrin, and we'll talk about this, presenting their verdict on Jesus before they transition him to the Roman authorities. So there is a Friday morning standing before the Sanhedrin as well after this night of mock trial with the Sanhedrin. And then fifthly, Jesus is delivered to Pilate. And it's at that point that we find the Roman system utilized for the crucifixion of Christ. So those are kind of the the factors, the timeline of how this evening is progressed. Jesus has the Last Supper in the upper room with the disciples. He moves from there to the Mount of Olives. He moves from the Mount of Olives in his final words to the disciples and instruction to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John with him into the garden. He prays. He prays what Kristen was singing about during the offertory, that this cup would pass, but he submits to the Father's will in mercy and grace for us. Adam's helpless race. He's arrested there by a mob, armed and dangerous. Peter attempts to lash out in defense of Christ. Christ responds with compassion and grace toward even his captors and his betrayer, Judas. He's ushered to Caiaphas' house where he stands before Annas, then before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He's persecuted through the night as the verdict is delivered. He's brought to to the temple, to the courtyard of the temple, to where the court would be held. And the Sanhedrin addresses all who are there, pronouncing their verdict on Christ on Friday morning. And then he's delivered to the Roman authorities on Friday morning to be ushered to his death by Friday afternoon. That timeline is important. It's difficult to keep all those facts together when we're in Matthew. We know Mark says, he describes this slightly different, but in pretty general terms, it's the same as Matthew. Luke might add a few things or subtract a few things that he wants to highlight. And so John's gospel then comes in as the fourth and brings certain information that maybe the other ones don't have. And so collecting all of that, giving us a timeline helps us to understand and appreciate what's taking place in our text this morning. Now, these are dark these are dark hours and moments. And really even reading them is, is dark and heavy as we read such, such pitiful words about real individuals who are interacting with the true Messiah of heaven. And yet, God's intention with this text is we study Peter's denial and we study the mock trial of Jesus before the Jewish authorities has the same um, thrust and intention as every other text in our scripture. This portion of God's word is intended to mold us who are God's people to look more like Christ. 
And it is intended to convict those who are not God's people of the validity of the messianic claim of Jesus, that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah. This should seal it even further, that there is hope in no one else but Jesus. There is salvation by no other name under heaven but Jesus. So we should be eager as we begin our study of this final, these final verses of Matthew chapter 26. Though they are heavy and though they are dark, they are meaningful to us as God's people. Now last week we saw the mercy and grace of Christ displayed in these preparatory moments for his crucifixion. And that was an important study for my own heart. I know it was important for many of you as well. That theological smorgasbord, if you will, that's represented in those paragraphs that we talked about, whether it be the the providence of God and working His sovereign plan out in the life of Christ and in the death of Christ, or whether it be that mercy and grace that we see on display, that carries over into these texts. No doubt we should be reminded of the sovereignty of God as we study this portion of God's Word. Every verse should ring in our ears that God has a plan and He's accomplishing that plan through His Son. None of this is by accident. None of it is out of control. All of it is under control and on purpose. But furthermore, in these texts, something that comes comes flying to us as God's people as we read is, is the nature of Christ's suffering as substitute. You see, here in this portion in particular, we come face to face with the substitution of Jesus Christ for us. So I believe the big idea here, if we're going to take one theme and kind of lay it over top of both of these paragraphs, it would be this. Jesus was rejected by men so that men might be accepted by God. Jesus was rejected by men. And perhaps it's better to turn it more personally so that I might be accepted by God. What's taking place in Caiaphas's house and what's taking place in the courtyard is so that we might be accepted. We might be brought into the family of God. The substitution of Christ culminating in his sacrificial death is seen even here as we read in Isaiah chapter 53. The gospel is the good news of a substitute for sinners. There is someone who will stand in and take their punishment And who will stand in and grant them his righteousness. It's Christ. It's Jesus. He is the son of God. He is the Messiah. Jesus was rejected by men. So that men might be accepted by God. This is seen in just these two simple paragraphs. And we'll just give them headings as we outline these narrative accounts. Number one, Jesus was rejected by a Jewish mock trial. In my place. In my place. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish mock trial in my place. And this becomes evident in verse number 57 down through verse number 68. Uh, Verse 58 is is one little clue that Matthew is going to come back to Peter. And so we're just going to pass over verse number 58 because it's going to come crashing in on us as we get into our second paragraph. Verse number 57 begins, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now this this is all unfamiliar to us as mostly Gentile believers in a Western world. 
We are distant culturally and contextually from what's happening here in Matthew chapter 26. So it's important for us not to read into this our own situation, but to get our minds to be able to read what's actually happening and be able to, to, to picture what's really taking place. Immediately following Jesus' arrest in the garden, Judas kisses him to identify him in the darkness, in the low light. He kisses him. Jesus is arrested, and immediately he's taken to the home, according to plan, both of the Jewish leaders and of God's plan, to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where an illegitimate gathering of the Sanhedrin or the council or the elders and the scribes is already taking place. So, some form of communication was sent out that tonight Jesus would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some form of information was relayed that there would be a meeting that was essential and you, you needed to be there if you were part of the elders and scribes. And that's a distinguished group. That's, that's not just general elders, like older people, nor is it some kind of general term of, of a, a large group. This is 70, maybe 71 people total in the Sanhedrin. And they needed to meet at Caiaphas's home. And Jesus would be brought to them. Now, why is this trial such a mockery? In verse number 59, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Apart from the obvious mockery of intent in having any kind of a trial represented by these wicked Jewish leaders, there are other reasons that this trial is a farce from the beginning to the end. They're wrapped up in the laws that governed the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was the governing body of the Jewish people. The Jewish people live in, within the Roman Empire. They're under the control of, of, of the Roman emperor. But under that control, the Roman government was willing to, de to delegate to the Sanhedrin the authority, the structural authority, the day-to-day -day authority of the Jewish people. It was meaningful because they were the religious leaders and the governmental leaders of the people. This was the upper crust of the Jewish society. Most of these, and the high priest for sure is a Sadducee, most of the members of the Sanhedrin were also Sadducees. By this time, some Pharisees have also been brought into the picture as elders, as the lowest level of the Sanhedrin. Most believe that the Sanhedrin, as the governing body, traces its history back to when Moses was commended by his father-in-law. Do you remember this? That he was taking on that leadership of the nation of Israel by himself, and that he needed to have help, and so he ordained 70 helpers to help give him um, guidance as he led and to share in the leadership of the people of God, the nation of Israel. The laws that governed the governance of the people through the Sanhedrin included laws about trials before the Sanhedrin. Now notice these, these simple Simple rules that were negated for this mock trial of Jesus. Number one, this trial is at the wrong time. No trial was permitted by the Jewish law for the Sanhedrin after darkness had fallen. There, there was no legitimate trial after dark. You could not meet for a trial after dark and it be in any way considered legitimate. This is probably why they met again on Friday morning. Because to save face before the people, to present a believable story, they needed to have a daylight meeting with Jesus to pronounce their verdict upon Jesus. Number two, it's the wrong day. No trial was permitted on the eve of a Sabbath or a festival. And in this case, both were true. You could not have a trial 
in the day before, the night before, the evening before a Sabbath. So this is the wrong day. It's the wrong place. No meetings for trials of the Sanhedrin were allowed outside of the Sanhedrin's courtroom, which was on the grounds of the temple. There was no private home court meetings. This is a mockery. This is all just a play for the evil intention of the hearts of the Jewish leaders. So it's the wrong time, the wrong day, the wrong place, and it was the wrong procedure. No death penalty verdict could be carried out unless one day had passed since the trial. So you could not even enact the death penalty without one day's time past the trial of an individual for the sake of allowing evidence to come to light or for the decision to be questioned. Now, the Sanhedrin could, in some rare cases, actually hand out capital punishment verdicts. And one of those was blasphemy. The Roman government would allow it. They would cooperate with it for the sake of keeping peace with this often difficult group of people known as the Jews. So the Sanhedrin are gathered at Caiaphas's house and they're having an illegitimate meeting to pass down an illegitimate verdict upon an illegitimate victim. None of this is about justice except the justice of God being carried out on our behalf. And none of this is about truth except the truth of God's promises to send a suffering servant to redeem a people for his name. Now, the claim that comes in these verses from these, finally they get two witnesses who have something that is substantial. This doesn't mean that they're scurrying about in the middle of the night looking for people to say something. It's just that they had been, they've been looking and producing false witnesses. These two have the most believable false testimony to bring. So, playing out the mockery, they actually have witnesses against Christ who present this as their accusation. Verse number 61. This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. A part of that is true. Jesus did say that if the temple were destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days. This comes from John chapter 2 and verse number 19. And that's important for you to remember because it's not coming from Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21 is when Jesus was relaying just with the disciples. Remember this? Walking out of the temple. They see the temple mount. They see its beauty. They point to it and Jesus tells them not one stone will be left on top of another one. This is from John chapter 2. A much different time and a much different setting where Jesus says the temple being destroyed, he will rebuild it. He will rebuild it in Three days. Let's go to John chapter 2 and just see it for our own eyes, or with our own eyes rather, for our own understanding. Verse number 19. John chapter 2 and verse number 19. So the Jews, verse 18, said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, this is all a part of the explaining away the miracles of Jesus. Jesus answered to them, or answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, the, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? In John's commentary, verse number 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered 
that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word of Jesus, the word that Jesus had spoken. So here within that crowd of people who were questioning Jesus, there were some who heard what he said about the temple being destroyed, slightly twisted that, heard his claim that he would rebuild it and brought that accusation against him as an unbelievable statement from Jesus, a discrediting statement from Jesus. Merely on the human level, that statement was laughable. They knew how long it took to or had taken to build the temple. And his claim was an unbelievable claim. Notice what Matthew records about Jesus' response to this question. Jesus said to them, you have said so. Or rather, I'm sorry, verse number 63. But Jesus remained silent. And in the frustration of this setting, they finally have a witness, two witnesses that come forward that bring some kind of claim that might stick to Jesus as a discrediting claim. If Jesus will just say, you're right, I I said that, but I can't do it, then he's discredited, everything's fine. Release him and tell the people that he has discredited himself. That would be great for the Jewish leaders. That's what they desperately wanted. Better yet, for Jesus to say that he did say this, and in so saying, set himself up for being divinely powerful. Jesus would not respond to their false testimony. He remains silent. And if this were merely a human trial and this was merely a a human set of events, folks, this would be this would be the most ridiculous response. Why not respond? Why not argue his way out? Why not point out how false these statements were and how they were twisted to mean something they never meant? Why not justify himself? Because in his silence, Jesus is accomplishing the plan of his father. He has submitted to that plan in the garden and he is in our place being rejected by men and being despised by men. The high priest will have nothing of it. And so he presses the issue, bringing it to its head. And the high priest Caiaphas said to him, I adjure you, verse 63, I demand of you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And so true was the high priest's statement. That Jesus, as he'll do with Pilate, simply responds with, you have said that. You've said it. You're speaking the truth. Notice Jesus' clarifying statement in verse number 64. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is not lost in the moment. He's not like us in the moment where confusion floods in. We don't know what's true. We don't know what's not true. We're flustered. We're, we're rattled by the, this, this persecution or the suffering that's taking place. We're wondering, is this really God's plan or is this not God's plan? He's absolutely confident. And he says so by saying, you will only relate to me from this point forward. As the exalted son of heaven. As the king of kings and lord of lords. You will only relate to me. In my power and glory as displayed in his resurrection life. So, yes, Jesus declares that he is, by the words of Caiaphas, the son of God, the Christ. And he declares his confidence in the plan of the father. Well, this is enough. And Jesus being rejected by this Jewish court in our place faces the consequences of his statement. 
Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. The, the high priest was not allowed. He was not permitted by law to tear his clothes. Tearing clothes was, was a common way of showing grief or shock or despair at an activity. I'm, for one, grateful that this has not been passed on through the generations. That we don't tear our clothes. This was very natural part, except the high priest was not permitted to tear his clothes. Except in the case of blasphemy in his presence. And so Caiaphas, wrapped up in the mockery of what is a false trial, plays out the part to the fullest. In his mock shock at what Jesus has said. In this mock trial where he's the mock judge sitting and presiding over a mock Sanhedrin meeting in his home. He tears his clothes in mock despair and grief. And levels his accusation that he's been waiting for. Blasphemy, which is a capital offense, which will fit perfectly into the plans of these wicked Jewish leaders. He turns to the crowd and says to them, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. This was not out of control. This was not outside of the plan of God. Christ was not unaware of that plan and he was submitting in these moments to that plan. Verse number 67, they spit in his face and struck him. And the other gospel accounts fill in that they blindfolded him and then they slapped him, which is which is actually not the same slapping as we're used to, which would be with the fingers primarily, but rather open handed blows to the face. And as they pummel him and as they spit on his face. They mock him. And they say to him, prophesy to us, tell us what can't be known. You Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, there's irony that's thick in this. And if you've been reading Scandalous, our our featured resource right now, you know, the irony that's wrapped up in this in this passion of Christ, in these moments of suffering in Christ's life. Because prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The irony of that is he is the prophet. He is the greatest prophet and he is the Christ and he does know who struck him. And yet he's silent. He does not answer. Why? Why does Jesus not answer in this Jewish trial that is in no way legitimate or legal? Why? Because this illegitimate and illegal trial is on purpose. It's not an accident. It's not a bad turn of events. It's not a downward swing. It's the plan of the Father, the Sovereign One of Heaven, who has ordained a means to the end, and the end being the salvation of sinners, the means being this suffering by His Son. The Father's will was to crush the Son, And the son obeyed the father by silently going to the slaughter. In my place. And in your place. If you're in Christ. Jesus is here rejected by men so that we in eternity might be accepted by God. This is intentional, willful allowance of murder. 
on the part of the one who is murdered. He is both priest and sacrifice. And he's offering himself up for us. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish mock trial in my place. And he was rejected by Peter's denial in my place. Number two, Jesus was rejected by Peter's denials in my place. One of the most familiar portions of our New Testament, no doubt. Beginning in verse number 69. Now, Peter was sitting in the courtyard. I've always thought of this narrative account combined with Luke's gospel um, in my understanding from Luke, I've always, for some reason, always pictured in my mind that that Peter was some distance away and that the house was over there and the courtyard was out in front of the house and that there was some kind of garden area that was a seated, seated area and he was distant from the house with the people who weren't actually invited inside. But what we know from this time period is that the wealthiest people often had square homes They were built with wings all around, north, south, east, west. And in the middle of their house was a courtyard area for outdoor relaxation, an outdoor living room, if you will. This is big in Texas. When we lived in Texas, there were many homes represented in our church that had outdoor living spaces. The courtyard that Peter finds himself in is in the middle of Caiaphas' house. And he's moved there with the servants and the soldiers. He's mixed in with the group of people who arrested Jesus. Why? Because of verse number 58. He trailed that group as they walked from a distance. The other ten men have fled. We don't have any account of where Judas is at this point. We will find him again soon in sinful remorse. He'll take his own life. But Peter follows behind that group. And at time, he, he merges into that group. And he moves into the courtyard. They're not welcomed into the mock courtroom. They're in the courtyard. And it's here that Peter faces the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy to him just hours earlier. Peter's response is so familiar to us that we lose sight of what's even happening. One servant girl, then two servant girls, and then a group of bystanders. All address Peter as being not with the group. Peter first says, I don't know what you mean. I, when I read that, um, there's something in me that wells up with familiarity to this. I was a I was a problem teenager, uh, very much so because of my dead, wicked heart. And often when I was confronted with my sin or a very serious set of sins, and I was accused of something, I would say, I don't know what you mean. That was, that was a convenient way of not yet saying, I didn't do it. I would just say, I don't know what you mean. I, 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 don't, I don't understand what you're saying. And I can remember the response being, what didn't you understand? About what I just said to you, son. Peter says, I don't know what you mean. This is an avoidance. It's a denial with avoidance. I'm not sure I understand what you're saying. I mean, I've just been walking along here. I've just been in the I've just been in the group. I I don't know. I don't know. The fear grips Peter. He's inside the courtyard. He's within Caiaphas's house. He's with the, the people who part of them at least made up the mob of arresters. But he moves further than that. And when the second servant comes, verse 72, Peter again 
He denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Now, what's happening with the oath and with the cursing? This is not foul language, okay? Um, Peter's not guilty here of colorful language in describing him not being associated with Jesus. What he's doing is he's swearing on something to bolster the truthfulness of his claim. He's saying, I swear upon whatever. Whatever truth, or I swear upon some name or some family member or something. I swear to, I give an oath that I'm telling you the truth. I don't know Jesus, number two. Then third time, the bystanders say that his accent betrays he's Galilean. He's an uneducated fisherman. Which is, which is interesting to us. We get that. There are parts of our country where you could get someone in a right geography by their accent. And Peter now goes all out. He invokes a curse on himself. So instead of just saying, I swear on this, he's saying, not only do I swear on this, but I also, if I'm not telling the truth, I'm bringing a curse on myself. May I, you know, suffer some consequence if I'm not telling you the truth. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. This was a devastating moment in the life of a true follower of Christ. Devastating in that Peter remembers what Jesus said to him, but devastating because this is not the full account. If we read Luke chapter 22 and verse number 61, we know that the eyes of Jesus met the eyes of Peter as he was denying him. I've always wondered, how did that happen? Because within that courtyard, either this was the point at which they were transferring Jesus from his meeting with Annas to the meeting with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Or there was a window where they were standing near so they could listen in. But in any case, Jesus and Peter looked at each other. And Jesus knew in that moment that Peter was rejecting him. And Peter knew in that moment that he was rejecting his Savior. This is a devastating moment. And this moment is a part of the suffering servant's role as substitute for sinners. Matthew's understated in the response. Verse 75. And he went out and he wept bitterly. It's recorded in tradition, Jewish tradition, it can't be substantiated, that the Apostle Peter, who would go on to be a key leader in the church, who would be the very voice of the day of Pentecost in his preaching. Never again heard a rooster crow without crying at the thought of what it represented for his own experience. You have had experiences where some tragic event is connected with some amoral situation. And you can't get into that situation again without connecting it to that weighty circumstance. Peter weeps bitterly as he realizes that he has, in fact, fallen away with the other ten. There's no part of the rejection of Christ by the Jews or even by the twelve. Judas has damningly rejected Christ. Peter and the others have have restoratively rejected Christ. They will be restored, but they have walked away. And none of this is outside of your 
and my salvation. You see, this is all a part of the plan. Jesus must be rejected by men. He must be stricken. He must be despised. And we should see him that way. Because it is in this state that that he will be led then to bear our sin at the cross. To take upon himself our guilt. to, to, To feel the weight of our sin and then experience the wrath of his father against our sin. To be cursed by the father who removes himself from the Son, looking away from the Son and pouring out our curse upon him. This was all a part of our salvation. Do not read these and go, ho-hum, let's get to the cross. This rejection by men, Peter and the Sanhedrin, is, is part and parcel to our being God's people. Jesus is here being rejected by men so that we might be accepted by God. This is no small circumstance. Christ had to be rejected, abandoned, murdered, so that in doing so, He might bear the wrath of God for my sin. This is in my place. He didn't deserve to be at any trial. I deserve to be at a trial. He never deserved to be despised and forsaken. I deserve to be despised and forsaken. He never deserved to be handed a verdict of death. I deserved death. And yet, he's experiencing it all. And I will experience none of it in the presence of my judge and creator God. Why? Because he is my substitute. And he's yours. If in fact, your name is written in the book. So, as we come to this text and address the substitution of Christ being rejected in our place. It, it naturally draws us to consider, do I know this substitute? Is this my hope? Is he my hope? What is it that you place your confidence in when you're quiet enough and still enough to think, what is it that will earn my way into an eternal heaven? What is it that will earn my place in the blessings of the presence of Christ? What is it? What obedience, what righteousness will so outweigh my sin that God will look upon it and allow me into heaven? And if it is not the substitute righteousness of Jesus, you're lost. And if you do not view your sin as being taken by Christ and you do not believe that at the cross he is bearing the wrath you deserved and your hope and confidence is not wrapped up in the person of Jesus, the Christ. Loved one, you are lost and you will spend an eternity apart from this Christ. You will only know him in his wrathful power coming on the clouds of heaven. This suffering Savior is our catalyst to worship. He is the very source of our life before God. So question number one in conclusion, do you know this salvation through this suffering Savior, this substitute? Number two, is this love, this substitution, this kind of recklessness on your behalf, the centerpiece of your life. Does this control your life? Say, well, let's, let's, let's back off a little bit. I mean, is this really supposed to control my life? Let's finish our study time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let, let's hear the words of Paul 
with this trial and Peter's rejection and the substitution that it represents. The fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 verses 2 through 7. The Apostle Paul says in verse number 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. What is the defining motivation for us in our walk with Christ? What is the, the, the lowest common denominator of the believer's motivation in walking with Christ, in sharing the good news of Christ, of obeying Christ? It is the love of Christ for us and our responding love for Him. He died, and in Him we all died. That is, our death was accomplished in His death. So that in Him and His life and resurrection, we live. Therefore, we live for Him. Paul says in verse 16, For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Our relationships now are not based upon our human existence. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Old heart gone, new heart come. Old affections gone, new affections come. And it is here in our substitute Savior that we find our affections drawn and compelled and controlled for the glory of God. Jesus was rejected by men at the trial before the Jewish leaders. And by his own apostle and immediate friend, Peter, in the courtyard. So that I might be accepted by God. This is gospel truth from the gospel of Matthew for our lives this week. May we be shaped and molded by it. And it leads us smoothly into remembering the full substitution at the cross of Christ, where his body was given and his blood was shed in our place. Let's pray in preparation for the Lord's table. Father, thank you for this word from you. Thank you for your, your slowness to respond to sin, your patience in bringing us to repentance, in opening our eyes to a substitute whose righteousness by faith is credited to our accounts, whose death and, and, and moments at the cross bear our sin and your wrath against it, and whose life three days later is our hope and our coming expectation of life eternal. Life of knowing you. He has accomplished this. He has done this work. Made these these portions, as we move toward the cross in Matthew's record, may we, may we not miss any of these moments in seeing his rejection, the despising of men, as ours being born by him. So that he might be exalted, we might be appropriately in awe of your grace and your love through him, and that we might live effectively for your glory and for his exaltation. We need 
help, Father. We believe, but we cry out, help our unbelief. Realign us, reshape us, mold us so that we might be influences for your kingdom. Trophies of your grace, vessels in your hand. Help us now as we turn our attention to remembering the fullness of the substitution of Christ in his atonement, in his giving of his own body and shedding of his own blood in our place. May the cross weigh upon us appropriately and may our hearts rejoice with celebration in remembering that we will never know your wrath. It has all been spent on him. We are the recipients of no condemnation, but only the blessings of your grace. We give you praise and thanks, and we ask for this time to be for your glory and your glory alone, even as we benefit from remembering together that we are Christ's through the blood of his cross. We ask for that in his name. Amen.